1 Timothy chapter 6, please. Almost toward the end of the New Testament. Chapter 6 is on page 993 in these Bibles from the pews. This week and next week we uh, spend uh, use a couple of sermons to talk about our relationship with, uh, with money and giving and stewardship of finances. Today talking about contentment as opposed to covetousness. <clears throat> Just a little word of introduction. If you remember, uh, Timothy is Paul's uh, student. He's a pastor in the great city of Ephesus, the great ancient city of Ephesus. And Paul writes this letter to him really on, as a handbook on how to, uh, how to, how to do church, uh, worship, officers, so forth. And here he's dealing with some false teaching that is coming to the church by some people who stood to gain financially through their false teaching. And so he's going to use this not only to address that problem, but also to give a lesson about contentment and covetousness and some particular words to the Christian poor and to the Christian wealthy. I'll read verses 1 to 10 of chapter 6 and then drop down to verses 17 to 19. Hear God's word. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespected on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. We'll look down at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would nourish our hungry souls now, for we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. Contentment rather than covetousness. A few years ago, I read a book by John Krakauer. I kind of read every book he writes, From Into Thin Air and Under the Banner of Heaven, which is a history of the Mormon Church. 
But this book was entitled uh, Into the Wild. It was later made into a movie. You may know the story because it, it happened to a former student from just up in Atlanta. It's the tragic story of Christopher McCandless, a uh, young man from a uh, well-to-do family who graduated from Emory. Uh, immediately after graduating uh, with honors from Emory, he changed his name. He gave the entire balance of $24,000 in a savings account to a charity. He abandoned his car. He burned all the cash in his wallet. And then he invented a new life for himself, and he, he took up residence what we would call the ragged margins of the society in North America. He wandered all across North America. And he was searching for, as he said, meaning and through transcendent experiences. He ultimately hitchhiked to Alaska and walked alone into the wilderness north of Mount McKinley. And four months later, some moose hunters found his dead body. John Krakauer wrote the book, not just to give an account of the story, but it, it was an attempt to try to understand the thinking behind the actions of Christopher McCandless, which Krakauer being somewhat of the same personality and an explorer, a mountain climber, and so forth himself, he, he has respect for. And one of the many motives he found out which drove Christopher McCandless to to drop out of society was his personal conviction, his struggle, you might say, to understand the relationship between humans and material things, between being human and money. And he was convinced in his own mind that money and wealth somehow prevent us from experiencing life as it should be lived as a person. Now, although from carefully reading the book, I think he was confused and he was very mistaken in his conclusions, in my opinion. But I do know that people in general, and Christians in particular, through history, have tried with difficulty to find the balance between acquiring and using material things and not being materialistic. We're always searching for some kind of balance that's hard to find there. How can I own things and not be possessed by them? Am I truly using the possessions that God has given me, or do I just say that to justify my own materialism? We always struggle with that, any conscientious Christian, because there's no simple answer. But Paul addresses some of this here with Timothy. Now, I ran out of time at the first service, so I'm going to abbreviate even more than I was doing, but just a word about the false teachers. Uh, they have come into the church at Ephesus, as Paul had warned the Ephesian elders years before. He said, wolves will arise even from your own midst, false teachers who will try to lead the, the sheep astray. And they were teaching words that were contrary to what Christ had taught. And so Paul refers to what Christ taught as sound doctrine. The word sound is a medical term that means healthy. It produces a healthy church. Bad teaching produces a sick church. And so the words of Jesus and the words about Jesus were sound teaching. And Paul says these people have come in and they actually are teaching that godliness is a means of gain. It was an ancient form of the prosperity gospel. 
If you believe this, you'll prosper. And so Paul takes that, it does a play on words. He says, well, godliness really is a source of gain if it's combined with contentment. But the gain that he means is not the gain of the false teachers, which was financial gain. He means spiritual uh, profit. Profit spiritually if it's combined with contentment. So he's going to address two groups of people. In verses 6 to 10, he addresses the Christian poor. In verses 17 and following, he addresses the Christian rich, the wealthy. Now you may think, well, I don't see myself in either category. You rarely meet a wealthy person who views himself as wealthy because it's all comparative, right? I remember being at a very nice private club in Montgomery years ago, being invited to lunch with these people, and through uh, some stock in Coca-Cola, they were, appeared to me, to be very wealthy. And while we're sitting there eating this nice lunch, this other family comes in, and I, I thought I was with the fat cats, but then they started talking about, well, no, they are over there at that table. That guy, that guy over there, you realize how much he's worth? You know, that the, so where do we fit? I can tell you how the definition of wealthy is here in Timothy. If you have a surplus, if you have beyond food and clothing and shelter, then these are the verses that apply to us. So I assume we pretty much we all qualify with that. Okay, what does he say to the Christian poor in verses 6 to 10? Now, I won't go phrase by phrase, but I, I'll refer to the phrases, and you can look at them yourself. Uh, he's basically saying Christian contentment should not rest on external factors. Probably the best-known verse, one of them in those verses from Philippians, is when Paul said, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. An amazing statement. I have learned the secret of being content regardless of my circumstances. So here was a man, sometimes he was run out of town, he was beaten many times by his own testimony tells, left for dead. Other times he was surrounded by friends, uh, he was chased by enemies, and yet he said, in all of these circumstances I have learned to be content. Well, what was the secret? He goes on to say, I can do all things in Christ through him who gives me strength. That verse is in application of being content regardless of the circumstances. We want to jerk it out of context at times and say, and put it in any situation and say, I can do all things through Christ. Well, the all things here is being content regardless of the circumstances. And the emphasis is not on self-sufficiency, like I can do all things. The emphasis is on Christ's sufficiency. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So contentment is a Christian virtue that only God can produce in our lives through his Holy Spirit. So he's writing now to the Christian poor, and he's going to divide them into two categories. One are those who are content, and the others are those who are covetous. First, the contented poor in verses 7 and 8. These people are, are not destitute. He says, for we brought, but godliness and con, with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. Uh, these people were not destitute from the standpoint of having nothing. I mean, to be destitute is to be without food and water and maybe have a set of clothes on your back. It's to some degree what we see with some of the pictures of these Syrian refugees 
uh, on the news. Now, to be destitute means you lack the basic necessities to keep living. And if you don't have those soon, you will die. Uh, there's nothing in the scripture that says we could be, should be content in being destitute. What he's talking about is, he says, with food and water and shelter, basically. The meaning is more food and water and shelter. With these basic things, he says, I've learned to be content in those situations. Well, how does he urge them to be content? He urges them to be content by having a proper perspective on life and death. We brought nothing into this world. It is certain we'll carry nothing out. So, so the first step toward contentment as a believer is to recognize, I'm not taking any of this stuff with me. We leave the way we came in with nothing. I was sitting in a, my, uh, I have this study office closet above my garage. Everything gets put there. And I try to prepare sermons there. And I was sitting there. I prepared them there in Burger King and Wendy's, Starbucks. If you ever want to do away with half of the pastors in Macon, just drop a bomb on Starbucks, Tom Hill, on Friday afternoon. I think they're all in there. Anyway, I'm looking around this as I'm thinking about this point. We leave the way we came, and I'm sitting at a desk that had been my father's desk. All right, He left it when he died. He didn't take it with him. I look over to my left. There are two filing cabinets. One of those was left by, it belonged, I think, to one of my relatives. I see these various trinkets. There's an air rifle in a case that belonged to Barbara's father that he left when he died. There's a model ship up there that he made that belonged to him. Nobody takes anything with them. I, I have been told of a tattoo parlor that had a subtitle, you can take it with you, but that's not what he's talking about. So in respect to material possessions, we leave as we come. And so Paul says, first step being uh, the contented poor, those with little, he says, is realize we come with nothing, we leave with nothing. Uh, what then should our attitude be toward material things? He says, if we have food and clothing, with that we will be content. He's, he's essentially saying, I don't need more than that to be content. I don't have to have luxuries to be content. I don't have to have a certain standard of living above that in order to have true Christian contentment. He's not saying that's the maximum anyone should have. He's not saying this should be the standard of living for every follower of Christ, but he's saying that's enough. If you have that, that is enough on which to be content. So those are the words to the contented poor. Now he addresses the covetous poor in verses 9 and 10, and he gives warnings. The Old Testament is full of warnings about covetousness. We're warned that money is addictive, since whoever loves money never has enough of it. We are told not to be impressed by the wealthy in the Old Testament. We're told to remember that they will leave their wealth behind them. We know it's said in the Old Testament that one eager to get rich will not go unpunished and that we should pray to be given neither poverty nor riches, but only our daily bread. We find this all through the Old Testament. Jesus himself then told us to beware of greed. He reminded us that life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. 
And so Paul, in verse 9, he takes up this theme and he says, people who want to get rich, he's talking now to the poor, but they're covetous, they like to be rich. He says they fall into temptation and a trap, a snare. That desire to be rich will lead you into temptation. To dishonesty, to theft. The trap they fall into is the devil's for through their greed they will be ensnared in other things. Secondly, he says, covetous people fall into many foolish and harmful desires. Greed itself is a desire. And it breeds other desires. Money can be like a drug and it can be like an addiction. And the more you have, the more you want. And then the third thing he notices, the final stage in the downfall of covetousness, their wrong desires, he says, plunge them into ruin and destruction. That's why Jesus said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Then Paul quotes what was probably a current proverb of the day, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. What kinds of evil? Well, greed. Think what greed does. Open a newspaper and read the, the headlines and the stories and see, try to think, look behind what happened and think how much of this was greed. What was, how much of this was driven, these crimes that were committed against other people or against institutions or against individuals, was driven by greed. It can be hatred, fraud, cheating, envy, quarreling, violence, even murder. Greed lies behind marriages of convenience, perversions of justice, drug pushing, pornography sales, blackmail, exploitation of the weak, selling of the organs of aborted babies, the neglect of good causes, the betrayal of friends, often all driven just by greed. I want more. One day, we had an assistant pastor here named Sam Capel years ago. Many of you knew him. And he had a wife, lovely lady named Mary Ann, who was hilarious. She had funny things to say. One day, the youth director at that time had just finished his job and had moved. He was moving to California to go into business. And I was standing in the hallway, and I was an assistant pastor, and there were a couple other assistants, and we were looking in his office, and one of us said, and this shows you how old it was, I, I kind of like that re- recording machine that's hooked up to the phone. Another one said, I'm going to bring my chair and switch out the chair. And Mary Ann came walking by behind us, Mary Ann Capel, and she goes, the body isn't even cold yet. <laughs> Grief, you know. How many family fights over wills or lack of wills or possessions and and people that don't speak to each other decades later over things like this? What's it driven by? It's driven by greed. I've been greatly influenced the past few weeks by this book. I was taught as a very young Christian in high school to read biographies of, of Christians and especially missionaries. I know you can't see it from there, but This is the autobiography of the pioneer missionary to the New Hebrides. That's the islands called Vanuatu, uh, John G. Patton. Uh, Months ago, when a horrendous hurricane hit Vanuatu, those islands that are roughly 800 miles east of Australia, uh, we saw them on the news, and I remember mentioning from this pulpit that as they interviewed a lot of the people, many people were killed and so so many of the structures were destroyed. I had, uh, I'd never heard of Vanuatu. And I heard, though, them say that the, I looked in the news and the proportion uh, of the people there, the vast majority claimed to be Presbyterians. And I thought, how did that happen? That seems strange. And I went and I, I read some of the history of the islands and 
read about John Patton and his wife. They went there. When this building in 1858, this structure here was being completed, John Patton and his wife were just boarding a ship to leave Scotland to go to Melbourne, Australia to ultimately, after four and a half months, to end up on the island called the Islands, called the New Hebrides. The, uh, the largest island is Tanna. And uh, that was in the news, so I began to read about John Patton and the people there. And they were cannibals, the tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of, of natives that lived on this whole series of islands. There's a whole bunch of them separated by what you need a ship to go, essentially, from one island to the other in some cases. In 1830s, England sent the first missionaries there, two men, and they no sooner had they arrived on the beach than they were killed, cooked, and eaten in sight of the ship. So in the Presbyterian Church in Scotland in the 1840s and early 50s, they were pleading, pleading with ministers to leave, to go to take the message of the gospel to these people who'd never heard. After two years, no one would go, and John Patton said he would have nightmares, as he called it, and to show you archaic language, the wailing of the heathen who have no hope of the gospel. So as a young man, uh, I guess he's around 20, maybe 21 years old, he volunteers to go, and he, he, uh, he and his new bride, they, they leave in uh, the spring of 1858, and they arrive there, and uh, one, you know, within two months, she's dead because of malaria, and then they have a baby that had been born, and it dies two weeks after the mom. He buries them with his own hands next to a little hut he had built there on the beach. But he stays there uh, for, for two years, and during that time, though, uh, you, you get a picture from this autobiography of, of, of some of the reasons for the hostility toward uh, the missionaries was because of the traitors, the the European traders that would come there. On these islands was sandalwood, a very um, valuable wood that, that grew only on, in certain places in the world. And the traders would come there and they would trade them muskets and things like that to the natives and blankets and they would, to get this wood. Well, on September 1860, John Patton writes uh, of this, what he calls a never-to-be-forgotten illustration of the infernal spirit that possessed some of the traitors toward these poor natives. One morning, three or four vessels entered our harbor and cast anchor in Port Resolution. That was on the eastern side of the island. The captains called on me, and one of them, with manifest delight, exclaimed, We know how to bring down your proud Tannese, the people of Tana. We know how to bring them down now. We'll humble them before you. And I answered, surely you don't mean to attack and destroy these poor people, do you? And the man replied with rejoicing, we have sent the measles to humble them. That kills them by the score. Four young men have been landed at different ports, all sick with measles, and this will soon thin their ranks. And Patton writes, shocked above measure, I protested solemnly and denounced their conduct and spirit. But my remonstrance is, Remonstrances only called forth the shameless declaration. Our watchword is, in other words, our command is sweep these creatures away and let white men occupy this soil. So they capture one of the chiefs. They, they, they trick him. They tell him they've got a gift for him on the boat and they bring him out to their ship and when he's there they lock him into a, a dungeon type thing with three other men that have measles. 
and they keep him there for 24 hours and don't give him any food or water, and then they let him back on the beach, he goes back. Within the next two years, tens of thousands of these people die. And so they viewed the missionaries, said, you know, they're white, you're white. They blamed the missionaries for what had happened to them and their superstition. But as I read this, and as I read Pat's, every morning I wake up and I look forward because I read a chapter a morning, and I'm already up to uh, 200 and something pages. I commend this book to you. It's the most moving uh, missionary uh, autobiography I've ever touched. Um, I can't wait till tomorrow morning. I get to get up and, and keep going. Uh, but the greed that was behind it, how it has influenced the spread of the gospel. Now, quickly. So he's addressed some words to the covetous poor, to the contented poor, and now to the covetous poor of the dangers of wealth. And now a few words to the wealthy in verses 17 to 19. He mentions two dangers. First, negative. The danger of pride. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to be haughty. There's something about wealth that when, if you get a windfall, uh, it, it brings an attitude. You look down on others, well, why don't you get a job? Why don't you do something and improve yourself, like me? When maybe it was just given to you and you didn't have anything to do with it. So it brings with it, command those who are wealthy, who have surplus, not to be haughty. And he says also in verse 17, command them not to put their hope in wealth. It brings a false sense of security. Not just that you'll always have it, which is foolish to think. The old saying is many people go to bed rich and wake up poor. They've lost it all or it's been stolen or taken or the market destroyed it. Um, but he says, don't put your hope in that or a false sense of security like I'm so wealthy I can't die. Bad things can't happen to me. You know, I, if, I won't, I won't you know, th- th- those kind of diseases, those kind of fatal accidents, those happen, they don't happen to people like me. Oh, yes, they do, every day. So rather than having a false sense of security, he says, tell them to put their hope in God. So the two dangers of having a surplus, and this this speaks to most of us, the wealthy, is a false pride, looking down on those who are poor, who are less fortunate, and a false security, trusting in what we have rather than the giver of what we have. So here are the positive instructions he now gives to the, the wealthy in verses 18 and 19. First, the wealthy should have a sense of responsibility. Those who are rich, be rich in good deeds. We should realize God's given to me, as we heard in that fine testimony, so that I then can, can give to others. That if I have extra, I should view that as God has given that to me, and I should at least pray and think, Lord, do you have a special purpose for this in mind? Rather than just thinking, well, anything I have is all, is all mine and should be kept by, by me and used by me, when maybe God's given it to you to channel or funnel it in another direction. Second, the rich need a sense of proportion in verse 19. Proportion in the sense of what we want to lay up treasure is for the next life. Take hold of the life that is is going to come. I'm out of time. But do you recognize where you are in this passage? All of us fit here. And all of us need to guard our hearts against greed and covetousness and lack of contentment. And we need to beware of pride that comes from having more Uh, than another person. We need to beware putting our hopes or trust in what we have, but put our hope in God. 
Years ago, the great preacher, Dick Lucas, he's a preacher in London, he preached here on a Sunday night. But one of the stories Dick Lucas tells is of a man that he met in London who went to a church in a very prosperous part of uh, his county in England and preached a form of the prosperity gospel that God definitely wants you healthy and wealthy. He sometimes doesn't care whether we're wise or not. Anyway, the minister told him, told this man, if you trust in Jesus Christ, he will give you a Jaguar automobile. And the man was perplexed, and he left there, and he went down to a nearby church, and he went up to the pastor, and he said, I went to that church, and he told me, if I trust Christ and follow him, God will give me a Jaguar. But there's a problem. I already own a Jaguar, and I'm miserable. Is there nothing more to this? Doesn't Christianity have anything more to offer me than another automobile? Yes, it does. It offers in Jesus Christ the true treasure of the soul. What the human heart, what your heart, what my heart longs for is offered in Jesus Christ. Meaning, purpose, joy, hope for the next life, security in death, certainty in who we are because God's made us in his image. That's where we want to be, in him. Let's pray together. Father, Christ said that the evil deeds that that proceed in life come from our hearts and our hearts by our natures are greedy and self-centered and we thank you that you died you sent christ to die for such sins and we pray that our trust and our confidence and our hope would be in him and his work that through him we've been adopted as your sons and daughters that yes there's a great inheritance uh, that we will have because of that and we we thank you and pray that we'd use the brief time that you've given us on this planet, in this life, to your service. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look at the close of the order of service, you'll see the, the words to the tune of Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. Let's stand and receive God's blessing.